So as I mentioned, today we're going to talk about serving and how this is uh, an important aspect or characteristic of a group of people that follow Jesus. Leading up to that, though, let's talk about this. Ten years ago, uh, a Purdue University professor named William Muir led a study that asked a really simple question, but an important one. What makes groups, teams, organizations, societies, what makes groups more productive? How do great things get done? And so, to find out what makes groups more productive, Muir obviously studied chickens. Here's some chickens. Um, those are chickens in sweaters. Full disclosure, I don't think Muir's study had anything to do with chickens and sweaters, uh, but that's funny. Um, <laughs> I found that and I wanted to share it with you. And somehow that picture makes this next picture of Muir admiring his chickens not seem weird at all. Um, so there's Muir and his chickens. Here's what the study did. It took two groups of chickens, two flocks of chickens. One flock was uh, just left alone for six generations. It was an average flock doing average things, doing what chickens do, eating, sleeping, uh, making eggs, being gross, all the same stuff that chickens normally do. Uh, that's one flock. It was left to, for six generations. The other flock he constructed of the individually most productive chickens. How do you find out who's the most productive chicken? Who lays the most eggs? So uh, he took those that laid the most eggs and he made those into uh, a second flock. And every year he would, he would leave the most productive and he would take out the least productive and put more, uh, more productive chickens in. Essentially, he created a super flock of super productive chickens. And then after six generations, he looked at which flock was most productive. The, the average group, uh, you, you might call those uh, the, the Orlando magic of chickens. Just kind of an average group of, of chickens doing chicken thing, uh, trying their hardest, but, uh, you know, not really getting over 500. Um, that flock was doing actually incredibly well. They were happy. They were healthy. They were more productive than ever. The super flock of super chickens, you might call them the LeBron James of chickens. Uh, here's what happened with them after six generations. All but three were dead. They actually pecked themselves to death. That's a grim tale, I know. But everybody from economists to sociologists, they love this study because they think it's actually a picture into a window into human culture and human nature. Because so often we actually can live this way, this super chicken model. We can become super chicken parents who want our super chicken children in gifted programs away from all the regular average Orlando Magic chickens. And then we, we kill ourselves on the way to the best colleges. And then we kill ourselves all over again on the way to Harvard Law School. And by the time we get to the workforce, we are taught that our success depends on the failure of others. Eliminate everyone else from contention. That's what success looks like. And the idea or the goal that can guide us, and we wouldn't necessarily say it this way, but the idea that can guide us in the marketplace, in our life, in our interactions, is make the people around me less successful than I am. For the past 50 years, lots of organizations, lots of societies, lots of us of individuals have run on this super chicken model, leading to many of the same results as this chicken study. Aggression, dysfunction, loss of productivity, leading to less great things getting done. I was talking to uh, Jeff Kern uh, leading up to this message. I was telling him about this study and how fascinating I thought it was. And, and he wisely said, you know, it's not the, the uh, path 
that's necessarily the problem. There's nothing wrong with gifted programs. There's nothing wrong with Harvard Law. Those can be incredibly good things. The problem, oftentimes, is the motive. And for most of us, making the people around us less successful than we are is not very motivational. It's not a very motivating thought. It's not very inspiring. But if this is how things work, when we walk outside of this room in about an hour, if that's how the world works, what are we supposed to do? How can we live a different way if this is how everything works? Well, Margaret Hefferman, who studied Muir's work and is also a coach to some of the most successful CEOs in the world, said this, this is what we do in response. We make time and we create space for others. She says, as she's studied, this is what gives momentum to the greatest organizations. Time is everything. Time is where you build trust. Those groups of people that work together the longest are the most productive. Time, there's something about making time and creating space for others and working together that makes what gets done better. Here's a small example. She worked with one Fortune 500 company that made one slight change to the way they did business. Very, very minor. They synchronized their coffee break. So for 10 minutes a day, everyone took a break and gave a chance to talk, to interact, to know each other, to say hi, to ask how you're doing. And very quickly, profits went up $15 million and employee satisfaction went up 10%. Simple change that changed so much for that organization. Hefferman talked to teachers at the Royal Academy for Performing Arts in England, and she asked, what type of... Uh, what type of students are you looking for? Are you looking for the best, the, the most sensational actors you can possibly find? And to a teacher, they said, no, we're actually not looking for the most spectacular. We're looking for the actor that has something to offer the other actors. Because in acting, what happens between people, that's what's truly powerful. She talked to people in the music industry, to producers, and, and asked, uh, what about the superstars? They're the ones that really make it. And they said, yeah, we have superstars in the industry, but mostly they flame out. They don't last all that long. These producers said those that were most successful in the music industry, they were the ones who became collaborators because bringing the best out of others is how they actually found the best in themselves. Hefferman is painting a really different picture of how we should think and a very different way that we should think about society and community. And the thing is, what Hefferman talks about sounds an awful lot like what I read when I read the scriptures. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is sitting with some people that ask essentially this question. What should we do to be the most productive? What's the best thing we can give our hours and our life to? And Jesus responds this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This sums it up. This is how you should use your hours. Jesus is giving us the bullseye of life. The thing is, though, Though we all share the same primary vocation, we all share the same bullseye in life. So often we make other things the bullseye of our life. Work, power, authority, recognition of some sort, just having people notice us. Heck, we become super chicken parents that want the other regular chicken parents to notice us for making the best homemade costumes or throwing the best themed parties. These can all become the bullseye of life, the thing we pursue more than anything else. And what happens when that becomes our individual bullseye is it becomes our collective bullseye as well. And we find ourselves being a group of people that agree with Jesus' words, but have habits that pull us from them. 
The word for serve in the New Testament that's used so often, diakonos, it's where we get the English word deacon, not a word we use all that often here at Summit, but often referring to someone who is overseer of a service position within a church. But in its component parts, diakonos literally means to kick up dust. I love that. So this is what the word serve means in the New Testament, to to walk by something that has been settled and mess with it, change it unsettle things. That's what serving others does in the New Testament sense of the word. That's what putting down super chicken thinking does. It messes with things. It changes things. So if making time and creating space for others is a more productive way, if serving others is a better way to live, where on earth do we start? Because again, pretty soon we have to walk outside these doors. Well, Let's start with Jesus. Let's start with three things that he so often shows in his interaction with people that I think says a lot about how we should interact with people. If you're a note taker, uh, here would be three things to write down. Three things we so often see in Jesus' interaction with people. Noticing, listening, and then acting. The order is actually important. We'll get to that later. But noticing, listening, and then acting. Look at the scriptures. Look at uh, Jesus' interactions with people. See if you see these three things. I think you see them so often. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 10. It's one of my favorite uh, chapters in all of the scriptures, one of my favorite interactions with Jesus and, and someone he honestly didn't have to notice. Here's what's going on to set the stage. Jesus and his followers are headed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem for the Passover feast. People would pilgrimage from all over, really the known world, to come to Jerusalem during the Passover feast. This was a remembrance of God saving his people from slavery in Egypt. It was a reminder, an annual reminder that God cares about prisoners and he cares about freedom. And so people would come for that remembrance. And they were walking through, on their way to Jerusalem, they were walking through Jericho. And this was a town where the people would come out and they would uh, essentially watch the parade of of people on pilgrimage go by. It was a people watching. If you've ever been at the airport and you get there just a little early and you don't have much to do and you just watch people go by. Essentially, it was like a magnified version of that. It was like the big deal for Jericho in any given year was to watch the pilgrims go by. But this group would have had a particular fanfare. There would have been more people. The crowd would have been more robust because this guy that they were talking about was coming. This guy, he just acted differently. He talked differently. They say he actually heals people. And he invites in people that other people don't want to be around. And he has meals with people that you're not supposed to eat with. And he talks about God in a completely different way. And he talks about people in a completely different way. Jesus was coming by. And so there would have been a particular fanfare this day. Mark, the gospel writer, picks it up this way in verse 46 of chapter 10. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, again, on the way to Jerusalem, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he, Bartimaeus, began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Some of you this morning uh, came here and you probably identify a lot with Bartimaeus. You're hurting and you're feeling pretty ignored in the process. 
And if that's you, I really am sorry. I'm sorry that you're hurting, and I'm maybe even more sorry that you're feeling ignored. But if I can offer you anything this morning, and maybe this is the most important thing that you'll hear this morning, if you're hurting and feeling ignored, the Savior of the world, the one who came to live and love and die and rise again so that we can have life, when you call out to him, he stops for you. That's what this scripture might be saying most to you this morning. And if you are hurting, please don't hurt alone. Please don't ever hurt alone. We want to be a community that supports you and cares with you and cares for you as you are hurting. There's a prayer team up front every Sunday. Please avail yourself to that. Sam's email is in the bulletin. Shoot him an email. Call the office. Ask for me. Ask for him. If you're in a Summit Connect group, talk. Be open about where things aren't all right. And if you're not in a Summit Connect group, maybe this is the one most important reason for you to get into one. Please don't hurt alone. But Hebrews 13.2 says one of the distinctive markers of a group of people that follows Jesus is that they don't forget people. Hebrews 13.2, don't forget to show hospitality to the stranger, the one who feels like an outsider, the one who feels isolated, alone, ignored. Some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. This is one of those verses that oftentimes it's like, well, don't pay attention to that part because that's like super weird. Um, The angels part, it doesn't really mean anything. Let's just move on. But I actually think it means something in this case that is worth us paying attention to. This is probably a reference to Genesis 18 where Abraham shows hospitality to strangers as they were traveling and they end up being messengers of the Lord or angels of the Lord. But here's the broader thing that the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. That what God is up to in setting the world right and moving things from brokenness to connection, what he's doing in setting the world right, it's bigger but never more important than the one you notice when you serve. What God is doing in setting the world right is bigger but never ever more important than the one you notice when you serve. Noticing people is this important part, the uh, beginning of serving others. Super chicken societies, they don't bother themselves with strangers. And a lot of times, it's because of fear. The fear at minimum is a loss of time. Because strangers, outsiders of the group, they take time, they take work, they're distractions. And so super chicken societies say, you know what, I don't have time for that type of thing. But the group of people that we're called to be as followers of Jesus will always include, it won't be limited to, but it will always include noticing those that feel like strangers, sometimes even in the four walls of the church. Sometimes we can come to church, we can come to this gathering and feel like we're part of something, something but, but we're not actually known. And part of what it means to serve others is to notice. Here's a couple of uh, things that, that maybe you can use as a gauge to, 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 to figure out if you're noticing people or not. A lot of us have this friend, and it's a good friend. It's that one friend where you can be sitting in a room and you're just talking casually and they quietly lean over, not to make a scene, but they quietly lean over because they notice something and they say, hey, you seem a little off. You doing okay? It's a good kind of friend. Maybe you don't have that kind of friend. Maybe you could be that type of friend. That's one gauge to recognize whether we're noticing or not. Another It's a simple thing. When was the last time you met someone new that you asked them their name and then you remembered it? 
and then you went back to them and continued the conversation. If it's been a long time, maybe you're not putting yourself in a position of noticing others. Jesus noticed this individual. One of the most profound verses, I think, in all of the scriptures is that Jesus stopped and said, call him. And so serving starts with noticing. It continues with listening. Listening is a vital part of serving others. 1 Peter 3, 15 says, be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. This challenge, to be prepared to give an answer, oftentimes we focus on this, but it's implying something. This verse is implying that we're living the types of lives that people will have questions about, that we're living questionable lives. Jesus lived a questionable life. That's why Bartimaeus called out to him. He heals people. He loves people. He invites in people he's not supposed to. He invites people along. He's doing things that no one else seems to be doing. Bartimaeus thinks maybe, just maybe, he'll do it for me as well. And so he calls out to him. So Jesus notices, and then he listens. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they, the disciples, called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, Bartimaeus jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Immediately, Bartimaeus received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I think sometimes we feel like we're being heard until the person we're talking to responds. Let me give you an example. If you're a parent, you'll be nodding your head in about 10 seconds. So I have one of my three children. I won't uh, tell you who it is because I don't want to, to call them out. It could be any three at, at any given moment. But one has a certain propensity for this. I might say, uh, hey, please go put your shoes on. And they scurry off to their bedroom. And then time passes. A couple minutes, three minutes four minutes, five minutes, longer than it takes to put your shoes on. And so I go back to their room and, and, and ask them, hey, what's going on? Noticing that they actually are less shoed than they were before. Somehow their socks are like thrown around the room. It was like they were halfway there before. Now they're further away. And I'm like, what is going on? Well, I'm cleaning my room. Yeah, but what did I ask you to do? Brush my teeth? No. And if, you, and if I asked you to brush your teeth, why weren't you brushing your teeth? Feed the dog? No. Build a rocket ship? No. None of those things. We're getting further and further away. I thought you heard me until I saw how you responded. And we can laugh that off as like, oh, yeah, kids are so distractible, how cute they are. But the thing is, as adults, I think we live this way pretty often as well, or at least we can. Maybe your wife comes to you and says, hey, uh, on a normal week, I wouldn't need this, but I'm wiped out and I need just a little bit more help than, than maybe you've previously offered. And I'm sorry to ask, I know you're busy, but like, could, could, could you help out just a little bit more? And your immediate response is, I have needs too. Or maybe a coworker comes to you and says, hey, I'm going through a really, really tough time. And you respond, well, if it makes you feel better, my problems are way worse than yours. By the way, if you're that type of person, it never makes anyone feel better. When you say, well, if it makes you feel better, it doesn't. It makes everybody feel worse because they have their problems and now yours. It never makes anyone feel better by trumping their problems with your problems. That's not listening in the way Jesus shows us. Jesus listens in a way that serves. He makes the other the priority. His, his question what do you want me to do for you? I love that question. It communicates that Bartimaeus is valuable. 
and that he wants to hear from him. It's a let's sit in this moment for a second question. It's an empathy question. And what do you want me to do for you is a question that we as followers of Jesus should get really familiar with and we should repeat it often, as often as we can. What do you want me to do for you? If our listening looks like this, it can be what Jesus' listening was, both compassionate and creative. Because the thing was, no one expected Jesus to do this. Remember, the disciples were like pushing him along and they were rebuking this guy like, hey, don't bother Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. We've got big things going on here. And so it was a shock when Jesus stops and asks, what do you want me to do for you? So it was compassionate, certainly, but it was also creative because no one expected him to do it. Ours can be as well. Our questioning, our listening can be both compassionate. It can be the hand extended to someone in need, but it can be the beginning of the answer as well, the beginning of a solution, the beginning of helping. The call on our lives as followers of Jesus isn't to listen to the point where there's a break in the conversation so I can interject what I've been wanting to say. And the call to listen isn't to listen up to the point where something is a little bit uncomfortable and then you take just one step back from that. The call to listen is the call to empathy. It's to to have empathy for our kids and our spouses and our coworkers and that neighbor that you know you don't agree with. That's the call. It's the call to, to try to identify with people that are different than you. Hebrews 13.3 gives us a really interesting picture of this. It says, remember the prisoner as though you were imprisoned with them, the mistreated as though you were the one suffering. We have a campus in the 33rd Street Jail. Part of the Summit family is we have people, men and women, who are inside jail, but they're part of our Summit family. They're living out the vision. They're not putting the, the pause button on their life. They can follow Jesus right where they are, and we believe that. And so that's why we have a campus there. But many of them are told that the best use for their life is to be separated from everything and everyone that they know. And for some of them, that is true some of the time. But the question is, are we listening to them? Are we considering them? There are 50,000 people in Orange County that are in jail. And a vast majority of them are in a pattern of going back again and again and again. Are we listening? There are other things going on in our community. There are 10,000 homeless adults in our community, another 10,000 homeless children. Are we listening? In the six counties surrounding Orange County, there are 190,000 children who often or occasionally go without enough food. We're the only major city in the United States, the only major city in the United States where the majority of jobs The majority of jobs pay less than $30,000 a year. That means there are hardworking people in our community that don't have enough money to pay rent and provide for their family. This is what's going on in our community. Are we noticing? Are we listening? We live in a world where our Facebook pages are are littered with with posts and articles and and, and images and and, uh, all types of people. And for some of us, that's a little bit hard to handle, particularly in this season. I don't know if you know it, but there's an election coming up on Tuesday. There may have been somebody talking about it um, that that you've heard something about. And this can be hard for us. And and so we, we sometimes say, you know what, enough is enough, and we'll just edit out those that are the most difficult and the most challenging and the most different from us. And honestly, I'm not here to say whether you should do that on your Facebook page or not. I honestly am not sure. 
But if we're not careful, we live our lives that way. We edit out the most difficult and the most challenging until we're surrounded by people that look exactly like us, think exactly like us, feel exactly like us. And then we, wondered why, we wonder why we're divided. It takes work to hear someone's story, not just label them because of their opinion. It takes work to hear why someone acts the way they do before we judge what they've done. It's not that what you have to say isn't important. It absolutely is. It's just that theirs is too. I have this friend, um, Sophie King, who lives near the Atlanta area, and she works uh, at a shelter for women who have, um, who have been uh, arrested for everything from, from prostitution to, to distribution of, of narcotics, all kinds of crazy stuff, but they're actually seeking transformation. They actually want to turn their lives around. And she says uh, something that's always stuck with me. It's been very impactful in my life. She says, until I know her story, I don't have anything to say to her. I can't judge, I can't condemn, I can't help, I can't support, I can't encourage. Until I know her story, I don't have anything to say to her. In the 1980s, there was a pastor named uh, Jeffrey Brown in the Boston area. Boston in the 1980s, the homicide rate was raising exponentially. It was a really rough place to be and it was changing the city. Uh, parents wouldn't even let their kids out to play at night. And so uh, Pastor Brown said, uh, we need to do something about this. So they began programs that were reaching out to at-risk kids. They were preaching peace and the end of violence. And he said it didn't change anything. And so what he said is, I needed to redefine my sense of community. Rather than trying to draw people in, maybe I needed to reach people right where they are. Maybe I needed to go to them to help, they know, help them know they matter to God. And here's how he did it. On Friday and Saturday nights at 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., he and a small group of people would go out into the streets of Boston, and they would just talk with people. And they would get to know people. And they said that the myths that guided his thinking started to be dispelled. These weren't cold-blooded killers. Many of them were smart and talented people that, instead of being in university, found themselves on the streets. And they started to ask each individual that they came in contact with, what don't I know? What's going on in the streets? What am I missing at night? And it actually led to answers. It took time, but it led to answers. And they started working with schools and social workers and, and the police. They were all working together. And the homicide rate in Boston dropped 79%. It's called the Boston Miracle. And there were, there were, there were programs. There were, there were failed housing programs and failed drug prevention programs and, and failed uh, educational programs. What Brown said is that missing... Uh, that what was missing was mining the assets of the community. That's how things change, mining the assets of the, of the community. And Brown said the only way to do this is listen. Super chicken thinking means we push regular people aside as we provide our answers for how things can get better. And it doesn't work. If we race to act before we listen, we can do damage to the very people that we're trying to serve. The order of serving is very important. Notice, listen, and then act. And our action should always be to help establish or reestablish relationship, connection. The miracle behind every one of Jesus' miracles is relationship. 
take the leper. He heals the leper from his illness so that the leper could return home. He heals the man who was uh, living in a tomb. He was literally dead to the world. He heals him of his demons so that he could return back to his community. The man with the shriveled hand who was on the outside of the synagogue, Jesus walks to the center of the synagogue, heals him to remind the people that this person belongs in community. The miracle behind the miracle is always relationship. And you might be thinking like, look, I get this. I mean, I agree. I'm in. This is, this is awesome, but I don't know how I can end injustice. I don't know how I can restore relationships. I don't know how I can end world hunger. I don't know how I can end hunger in, in my own city. My schedule is so busy. I'm already full up. I don't know how I could add one more thing to the plate. It seems impossible. But remember, what Jesus does here is so simple. It takes no time to notice takes very little time to listen. And maybe your action of serving, it just includes a couple of simple words. Hey, you okay? Maybe that's where it starts. Ira Biak, who is a hospice worker, wrote uh, an incredible book. It's called uh, The Most Important Things. Being a hospice worker, he's with people in, in their last moments, in their most vulnerable moments, in their most painful moments, and, uh, and, and there's a certain clarity that comes with that. So he writes, these are the four most important things. Thank you. I love you. Forgive me. I forgive you. Those are the four most important things. And I know for some of you, a name popped in your head when I said one of those. Maybe your act of serving starts there. Simple words spoken to people in your path as you're going your way. That's what it was for Jesus. And for some of you, things are really, really good right now. Everything's up and to the right. Classes are going well or your work's going well. Your family's going well. And you think, you know what? If I mess with any of this, it's just going to, it'll all teeter off and, and it could compromise everything. But here's my encouragement to you. It's these moments when things are up and to the right where you're free to give some of your time and make space for others so that they don't have to feel outside. And if Margaret Hefferman is right, it's actually a more productive way to live. You'll get more great things done if you do. So where can your actions start with some simple words? Thank you. I love you. Forgive me. I forgive you. Because relationships, that's the miracle behind the miracle. This blind man, Bartimaeus, says to Jesus when he asks, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I want to see. I want to be more a part of the world around me. I want to be involved. And in the Greek, the interaction is just a little bit different from here, but I think it's important. It goes something like this. Jesus says to Bartimaeus, go your way. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, Bartimaeus received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Remember, they were headed to Jerusalem to remember that God cares about freedom for everyone. And Bartimaeus wanted to go that way. Having, having been given the choice, having come in contact with Jesus, that was his choice. He said, I want to follow the Savior. Here's an important thing that this scripture is showing us. Maybe this is something to take with you. Love has no rivals. None. 
Love is the way to get more done better in our homes, in our workplaces, in our community. Love is the more productive way, and it has no rivals. Given the choice, he wanted to follow Jesus. Being Christian community, being who we're called to be, means living like that. And you might be thinking like, hey, this, this nice serve thing is exciting or serving others. That's, that's cool. But the thing is, like, I don't feel it. I don't feel like serving others. Like you're supposed, you talk about empathy and I'm supposed to like, but, but I don't. I don't feel that way. Well, take these words from C.S. Lewis as an encouragement. Don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as though you do. Whatever, whenever we do good to another person made like us by God, we will learn to love them a little more or at least dislike them a little less. That's why we do nice serve. Because we value what can happen when we're in the habit of serving together, when we're a church that goes outside these four walls, not to just point at what's wrong with the world, but actually bring something good into it. It changes things. It kicks up dust. I've seen NYSERV, a simple three-hour Saturday morning, be so catalytic in transforming people's lives, not just those we serve, but us as we do it as well. That's why I'm encouraging you to be a part of it. I had a friend uh, named Jason who uh, recently lost a battle with cancer. He fought a fight that no one should have to fight, uh, and he did it well, and he finished strong uh, and boldly uh, and faithfully. But when I met Jason, he was kind of on the sidelines of faith and in some ways on the sidelines of life. He was just kind of floating through. Nothing was too incredible and he didn't feel like anything was incredible. And part of what changed that for him was that he led a nice surf project. It seems silly, but it's absolutely true. So he led this uh, project at a, at a group home, of a foster home uh, for children. And the project was pretty simple. Lay some mulch on a path. Doesn't seem all that significant. But Jason really attached to it. He said, you know what? I would love to do that project. I, I mean, because these kids, they deserve to, to be in God's creation and to have people show up and, and remind them that they matter uh, to, to me and to God and to people that follow God. And so I'm, I'm in. I'll, I'll do it. And he enthusiastically did it. And he was this great cheerleader for the project. And it went well. And, uh, and then he just kind of kept going back. He went back with his family. He went back with his Summit Connect group to engage with these kids. And so I wasn't terribly surprised when the next nice serve came around where he said, hey, I want to lead a project again. But then he said something really surprising. He was like, hey, can we do it a little differently this time? Could we possibly um, invite the kids from the home to work on a project outside of the home? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a great idea. And he said, yeah, I just, they're such great kids. I mean, they have so much to offer. Like God has made them with these incredible gifts and talents. And I just don't think they hear that enough. And I don't think they get a chance to display that enough. And so I'd love to maybe do a part, have some part in, in them knowing that, that, that they have so much to give and that God really cares about them and, and they matter. It was incredible. I mean, Jason's life w was changed because he noticed and he listened and then he acted he got to know those kids and he fell in love with them. And those kids were changed as a result of that as well. They're more connected and understand more about who Jesus is and how he loves them than they ever would have been if Jason hadn't taken that step. There's another couple that I can remember, a cute couple with this little baby, and they showed up on what seemed like a random Sunday at Summit, and, uh, and they came for a couple weeks. They were just trying it out. They didn't know even what they were looking for. But on week maybe two or three, 
They heard about this nice serve thing, this thing where we go out and serve in the community, and they said, well, gosh, that's, that's cool. Like, I think the church should be about that and not just care about what happens inside but outside. And so they signed up for a project. And on that project, they met uh, some people that were in a Summit Connect group, a group of people that were, that were trying to figure out who Jesus is and what that, mat- what that means for their life, and, and, uh, and they got to know him. And this great Summit Connect group said, hey, to this young couple, why don't you come join our group? Like, we just hang out on Tuesday night, and we, and we try to figure out this whole Bible thing and, and, uh, and, and what we can do with that. And they said, okay, great, we'll, we'll do it. And a couple months later, that husband of that couple that showed up on what seemed like a random Sunday took the step of walking out into the water and being baptized as a follower of Jesus. And his, his wife and their daughter cheered him on on the, on the side of the beach that day. And he said, the reason I did it is because I want to follow Jesus and I want my family to follow Jesus and I want to do it because I've seen a little bit of what it looks like when a group of people get together and know each other and care about each other and care about the world around them and are willing to serve. He is boldly following Jesus because he stumbled into this thing called nice serve. I don't know what your nice serve story will be. It might not be that dramatic, but it will be no less significant. It might not be that dramatic, but it will be no less significant. If you've never done nice serve before, it's coming up on Saturday. It's three hours of your time. Do it. Jump in with us. Sign up. Take that step. Move some stuff around in your calendar if you need to. Kick up some dust with us. And if you've done NYSERV so many times that it feels like a routine, but somehow in the routine it feels less significant, let me encourage you, please continue to engage because what we do repeatedly shapes who we are and what we leave undone shapes who we are as well. A big part of why this campus exists, why we're sitting here right now, is seven years ago, a group of people, small group of people, smaller than this number, got in a room and we said we have two options. We can either stay here, that was Herndon campus, we can stay here and we can invite our friends and family and neighbor and coworkers in to this place and we can seek to live the vision out here or we can go into our own neighborhood and, and, and we can reach further and deeper into those neighborhoods, the neighborhoods where we live with the hope and the help of the gospel. We can connect in Christ-centered relationships with people in our neighborhood. We can serve those in our neighborhood. We can expand the organizations and the people that we get to serve by forming a new campus. And they said, I don't know what it'll look like, but I'm in. A huge part of why this campus exists is because we wanted to be a people who could serve more people. And my hope is this is still a huge part of why this campus exists because there is something that happens when we're in the habit of serving together. So doing nice serve is important. I encourage you, be here next Saturday for that. But this is as much about your next week as it is your next weekend. It's making people around us less successful than we are. It isn't very motivating and it isn't very productive. But you know what is? Noticing people who feel like strangers. Listening to people who could go unnoticed. And acting in a way that establishes or restores relationships. That is motivating and that is productive. And when we do that, when we say we're willing to be a people that are in the habit of doing that together, we can do something very different, very good, and very needed in this world, and we can point to Jesus as we do it, the one who is very different and very needed and very good in this world. 
So from our lobby, to your classroom, to your office, to your kitchen table, to the grocery store, to the street corner, let's be people who serve, who notice, who listen, and who act together. Let's pray. God, we're grateful um, for the challenge of your word. It is indeed challenging. It messes with things. It kicks up dust, it, 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 and we're thankful for that. I'm also so incredibly thankful for the comfort of your word, that your gospel message is that you went first. You made the first move in love. You served us first so that we can have life and freedom and go as a reflection of your character. Help us be that. Help us be people who serve, not for our own glory, but for yours that are marked by this character that was so much on display in your life. We pray this.